Hello, good people. Welcome to Ramble On. It's that time of the week where you, without a doubt, our favourite football ramble listeners, uh, get to know uh, ourselves a little better. My name is Marcus Speller. With me on Ramble On today is Andy Brassel. Hello. Hello, Andy. Um, Andy, I want to talk to you today about your favourite football tournament that you've covered in your life thus far. You've covered a few, but I think the good listeners need to know which tournament that you enjoyed the most in covering, whether that be because of the quality of the football, whether that be because of the quality of the lager. We need to know, Andy. Good people <laughs> have signed up to Patreon and they want to know these kind of things to get under the skin of Andy Brassel. I don't know if I'm allowed a drum roll, but just in case, I'm going to go for Euro 2016, which might be a surprise a, to some of you. A terrible, a terrible tournament, Andy, from England's point of view. Why have you got to disrespect the nation like that? <laughs> and Roy well, Hodgson I, as well. Because I wasn't born in, uh, in in 1966, let alone covering it. Um, I you. know you're you're one of those people that goes, yeah, I was there. Just like you know, everyone goes there. Um, the Sex Pistols at the Free Trade Hall um, in in 77. Not true, but everyone mm. says it anyway. Absolutely. So why have you gone Euro 2016 then? This is surely from a personal point of view. Yeah, it's it's definitely from a, a personal point of view, and um, I think it's um, worth reiterating that not just in um a work capacity when you're covering football but in any capacity of enjoying football um in a live context you know whether you're um like going with your mates or you're going with your dad or your mom when you when you're young or a, a relative or friends um th the football should only be a little tiny part of it um it, it shouldn't represent the whole experience if you're if you're basing the whole quality of your experience on what the result is like or what the football is like you're destined for a lot of disappointment i, I think in and your you, football supporting life and you'll never choose world cup 2010 either <laughs> no. in fact there's a, there's a whole list of tournaments if we're talking about the england side of it <laughs> But, well, no, but I mean that, that tournament in general was was pretty dire. But yeah, so you were. I thought you were going to say Russia two thousand and eighteen. If I'm honest, yeah, I, I I did enjoy that, and um, that had one of my favourite uh, watching England experiences in uh, recent years because um, we went to watch the first game against Tunisia. Me and oh, what my a game crew. What a game, Andy! <laughs> oh, amazing, amazing. But imagine, Marcus, it was only. Um, lifted a little bit higher by the fact that we were watching it in this place. It kind of looked like a biker's club where you had these scary guys outside the front playing pool and outside the back in the restaurant bit where they had a big screen. It was just me and my two colleagues. Uh, and, and George Thorogood. Um, yeah. And uh, the, the, the projector was on the ceiling and it had some sort of auto shut off that turned it off every uh, 10 minutes. Now my two <laughs> colleagues were significantly shorter than me. The The waitress was about five foot tall. So basically the only person who could keep the whole England Tunisia experience going oh my was me on tippy toes, poking the projector back on. And mm. uh, fortunately it did come on again. Thanks to me just before the winning goal. 
You are a flipping hero. You and Harry Kane well, were the so. heroes that day. <laughs> well, you, you, but you said Euro 2016, and then I rudely interrupted. So, why Euro 2016 was that? Why was that the most enjoyable time for you? Because you've you've covered tournaments with the Portugal national team yeah. before, and been in close contact with Cristiano and others. But you didn't do that this time. So, why Euro 2016? No, I, I took the decision uh, not to actually uh, because. Um, Quite Not frankly, to go with as, yeah, because um, frankly, as um, my children have, have got older, I've found it more difficult to spend extended periods of time away from home. Um, mm. You know, the, the, the job's the job, and I'm, I'm very lucky to have it, and all of us are very lucky to to, to, to work in football. Um, but it doesn't change how you feel about your family, who are the number one priority, and um, the prospect of spending six weeks away and not really having the time or the, the window to see them. Um, I thought if there was a way I, I possibly could avoid it, I would. And um, as you might be aware, or as you personally are aware, Marcus, but as our listeners might be aware, I lived in France for a, a, a couple of years um, in Lyon. And um, we, we've got friends stroke family there. So what we did is we, um, I hatched this plan because this was just before my eldest son went to school so I could still take them off in non-holiday times. And uh, we all got in the car, went through the Euro tunnel, drove, drove down to, to Lyon. And I thought I'll cover all the games at Lyon and Saint-Étienne, pick up a few more on the way when the knockout rounds uh, got underway. And um, yeah, it, and it turns out- you'll all be merry and bright. Exactly. It turned out it was me who was holding Portugal back the, the whole time. Even yes. though I, I, I did end up seeing all but one of their games live during during this tournament so I was I was never far away the one game I missed was the Croatia Portugal game in the last 16 which was an absolute abomination of a game oh, anyway yeah. yeah yeah and so that that's the equivalent of going to the the 2006 World Cup and missing Switzerland versus Ukraine wasn't it oh Gordon yeah, in, yeah. or England Algeria 2010 um, oh right, okay. Classic. So, so you, I, I, the only game of the this tournament um, that I went to was in Lyon, which was the semi final. Portugal beating Wales two nil. Lyon is a, is, a, is a beautiful place, Andy, and you, you chose it, it very well. So, what, which was the first game then that you covered in this tournament? Um, Belgium versus Italy, which is an amazing game to to start off with. And, mm. um, you know, I think people were expecting a, a lot more from, from Belgium. But Antonio Conte played an absolute blinder during this tournament. Um, yeah. Italy, um, I think, defied expectation by getting to the quarterfinals and, and, and going out on pens. Um, oh, they were unlucky. They were, they were unlucky to do so, exactly. I mean, I don't think in a tournament where Portugal ended up winning it, it, it wouldn't have been completely beyond the pale if if Italy had, had, had done it instead. It was it, it was quite possible. They were so brilliantly organised in, in that game. They were. Um, the atmosphere is fantastic. And the, as it was at the time, quite new um, Park OL, now the Groupama Stadium. Um, it was full. It was lit. It was absolutely terrific. It was a real top bracket of international football. You're using a young a person's word when you say it was lit. 
Well, yeah, that's because of our, our office is uh, uh, football ramble daily is just full of young'uns. It's not my fault. Oh, I mean. It's like it's not my fault oh, that I'm wearing skinny jeans at the moment. There are no other jeans available. We're in their world, Marcus. It's entirely, entirely your fault. Do you remember who was the referee for uh, Italy beating Belgium 2-0? Can you tell me? Mark Clattenburg, Andy. You weren't the only Englishman there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't believe Clatters, Clatters didn't ask me to be part of the team. I'm, uh, I'm disappointed. Giacarini and Graziano Pella scored. That's how long ago yeah. that was. Two, the, two Premier League legends. Indeed. Flipping Nora. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, Italy were great in, in, in that tournament. I know the Irish beat them later, but they'd still top the group. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and they were very good indeed. So did, did you follow much of Italy throughout that tournament? I mean, you've talked very fondly of Conte and his, and his tactics uh, a little bit. Because they beat Spain. They were the first side to beat Spain. Yeah. Um, or on, on, on knockout Spain, should I say. Because obviously Switzerland beat yeah, them. Yeah, they knocked them out in Paris, didn't they? Yeah. But they ended their 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 tournament winning run. They'd won three of the previous tournaments, of course. It was a huge uh, scalp. And I know the, the Spanish side were, weren't quite what they were perhaps um, two years previously. But still, though, it was a, it was an incredible scalp from, from Italy. Yeah, it really was. But if, if we go back to what I thought was special about Italy in that tournament, uh, yeah. if we go back to the Belgium game, mm-hmm. um, the thing that I really loved when I was first getting into Italian football in, as, as a kid in the, the, the late 80s, this was in the era of Van Basten, Hullet, Maradona, et cetera, et cetera, Not bad. is all the, all the superfluous people around the pitch. And when I was saying before that it's not all about just what happens on the pitch when Graziano Pelle scored and just all the coaching staff the subs probably yeah. some random hangers on all in their <laughs> leisure wear just absolutely pile on the pitch as if they've yeah. won the final that's something that I loved about Italian football so much and made me excited about mm-hmm. it when I was sort of 10 <clears throat> 11 12 years old and so to to see that again mm. when I'm knocking on 40 at a major tournament was brilliant <laughs> so that was a great start for you personally in the, in the tournament that you're covering to see you know a good Italian side beat mm. uh, beat Belgium but what was it what was it like covering the tournament in terms of going to did, were you going to press conferences or were you do, doing any of that you know what, what was um what was the media access like to try and get a hold of players or managers and, and so on and so forth uh, mainly you speak to the players after the game. So uh-huh. uh, you go down into an area in, in, the, in the tunnel outside the, the, the dressing rooms called the mix zone where all the players have to walk through. They're not obliged to speak to you, but you can stop them and ask for a few words. And of course, you one of the try. friendliest teams, <laughs> yeah, one of, one of the friendliest teams, one of the friendliest nations generally was Iceland, mm-hmm. who I know you don't want to hear it, Marcus, but they, <laughs> they, 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 were the, they were the stars of this tournament. They really were. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, first, the first game I did at St. Etienne was the Portugal one, Iceland one game. Mm-hmm. And that was one where Portugal quite played quite badly, even though statistically they probably should have run out quite comfortable winners um iceland equalized berke in the in in the second half and um cristiano ronaldo um came out afterwards and 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 said well you know they just tried to defend they didn't even try to 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 play (laughs) and um one of my colleagues who i shall not name he was very very skillful about this actually um it, the the mix zone was not just a straight corridor at st etienne but a kind of 
uh, windy created by metal barriers sort of pathway. You know, like you might take to go in at a concert or an exhibition or something mm. like that, you know, where yeah. you have to zigzag back <clears throat> on yourself. Yeah, and yeah. Um, so you could see who was coming and where they were going as they came out of the, 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 the changing rooms. And so <laughs> basically, um, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo said this at the, the back end of the of the mix zone corridor and what one of my colleagues did because all of the iceland players were stopping they're super friendly and um very very engaged and very interesting just as all the fans were i mean what did they say something like 20 percent of icelanders were actually in france for the tournament yeah that's right yeah (laughs) absolutely (laughs) astonishing and they they made such an impact on saint etienne which is normally quite a gray place if we're being perfectly honest Mm. and um so after Cristiano Ronaldo had said this, my colleague ran around the front and said to, I think it was Carrie Arneson, uh, of course, he used to play for Aberdeen and, uh, and Plymouth as well mm-hmm. as Malmö. He said to him, um, oh, Cristiano Ronaldo has just said this. So I just ping-ponged it back to him. <laughs> and uh, Ar- Arneson just stood there and said, what do I think about that? I think tough shit. <laughs> I, I loved it. It was it was great. There, there was no attempt of like I want to I want to hear it from you know yeah. I don't want to comment on what anyone else has said or whatever. We just went straight in there. It's fantastic. Portugal qualified through that group with three points because they drew with Iceland, they drew with Austria, and they drew with Hungary in a, in a great yes. game. But Cristiano Ronaldo was particularly pissed off during this time. Did you know the person or anything about when he, he picked up their microphone and threw it in the in the river or something? Do you remember that one? This was at this tournament, I'm pretty sure. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was. I'm pretty sure it was. No, it, it's, it's not <laughs> someone who I, I, I knew personally. When yeah. I asked a few people about it, they gave me quite knowing glances as if to say, <laughs> well, he didn't do it for no reason, did he? <laughs> yeah, sure. So, but, you, yeah. but you've been around the Portugal camp in, in other tournaments as well. How, how is the Portugal camp? I mean, obviously they went on and won this tournament. Were you, were you personally very pleased for them, having been at tournaments with them previously and subsequently, because you were with them in Russia, I, I believe. Uh, you yeah. know, do, 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 did you get on well with good people and, and you enjoy the players' company and so on? Yeah, you, you know, I think the interesting thing about Portugal because um, they're they're so spread all over the world, unlike mm. say Italy or England <clears throat> are traditionally, or, or even Spain were until like I, I, would, I guess the last decade, more or less. Uh-huh. Um, they're not so home based, so they kind of tend to retreat into themselves a little bit. You know, they're delighted to be around each other, meet up with each other. It's kind of like a a reunion type of vibe really and of course when they're away they're never speaking their own language because it's only portugal and brazil apart from you know mozambique cape verde they're the two major countries who speak portuguese so Mm -hmm. the portuguese players when they're away in europe they don't really get an opportunity to speak their own language so cristiano ronaldo i think people look at him and think, oh, he's a, he's a bit of a ball breaker when he sits in press conferences at major international tournaments and says, I'm, I'm not going to answer anything in English. And he doesn't do that all the time, but he does that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's not just him. It's a kind of sense of, actually, this is us. We're creating our home from home. We're speaking our own language. We're embracing each other. We're embracing our own culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the, the way they feel about it. 
Mm. Uh, Andy, you saw Albania play, who who qualified for the tour for a major tournament mm. for the first time. Did you uh, speak to any of the players or, or any of the staff there? Because that was, uh, I mean, obviously they finished third in their group. They did win a game. They beat Romania one nil, um, yeah. but incredible for them for the for the nation to be at their first ever major tournament. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up, actually, Marcus, because for me, um, Albania beating Romania 1-0 was one of the absolute highlights of the tournament. Okay. If we boil, boil it down to like a, a sporting thing, well, it didn't make any difference, did it? Because as you say, neither of them went through, not as a, a, a third place qualifier. Mm. Um, and Romania, though, had, had started the tournament pretty well. I thought they were good against France in the first game. And it took that amazing Dimitri Payet oh, yeah. to, to, to beat them in that opening game in Saint-Denis. And, um, but then you got to this and tell Albania that it didn't mean anything. Like, for them to win a game at a major tournament mm. was absolutely enormous and you know we, we talk about what international football means and i know you feel very strongly about this marcus <laughs> the, 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 the fact that international football means something beyond just the football it means so much and with our albania at that game that night which was at lyon the, the stadium was full there were i think they estimated around 40, 45,000 Albanians because you have some in France, you have a lot in Switzerland and Lyon's quite near the border. So a lot of them had come come over. Mm. So the way which they sung the anthem was incredible. The way which they celebrated the winning goal, the tension in the last five minutes as they were holding on to it was unbelievable. <laughs> and the way they celebrated afterwards, I mean, once you get to the final of any major competition, when we're talking about um, the, the the post-match press duties, um, you know, when, when it's a, 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 someone's won a Champions League or a, a, mm-hmm. a European Championship or whatever, you know, they, they tend to come out in dribs and drabs because they're celebrating in the dressing room, they're FaceTiming their friends and family and all, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And they, they come out uh, and it takes a couple of hours for it all to finish. This was Albania. <laughs> because they were so stoked to have won this and it meant so much to them and their sense of nation and their sense of self. And I, I remember speaking to um, Lorik Sanna, a couple of the other players, uh, and they were just overwhelmed. You know, that they, they were celebrating not like they'd gone, gone out of the tournament, but like they'd won it. Like This means everything to our nation. We've, we've fought so long to to yeah. get to this point. I mean, if you go back to like the eighties or the nineties when, you know, there used to be pushovers and England mm-hmm. used to, to knock them over. Um, you know, th- this is something that showed that they'd come a long way. They're a serious international team. And to get that expression of what international football really means from them, I, I thought was absolutely fantastic. Well, what a moment for the Albanian fans inside the stadium and for Albanian fans celebrate you want those stories as well you want you know albania sure. iceland even northern ireland in that tournament and obviously wales who went on to the semi-finals for crying out. these are the stories that, that you want among the the big teams playing well and 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 the big yeah. players expressing themselves did you so portugal obviously um you know, progress through the tournament as as were others. I mean, when when we get into the kind of round of sixteen and then more so the quarterfinals and the semifinals, which games were you watching? Where were you operating by say quarterfinal stage? 
Well, b- before I get to that, actually, I, I, oh, it's yeah. interesting to hear you touch on, on, on Northern Ireland because mm. I was lucky enough to be at the game at, at also at Lyon where they, they beat Ukraine. And that was oh, yeah. <laughs> amazing. The it's moment when, McCauley. Yeah, the moment when he scored the opener, <laughs> like the place went absolutely nuts. And shortly after that, I think it was, was where they had the biggest June hailstorm that I'd ever seen. And one of the biggest hailstorms that I'd ever seen, period, where you could hear the hail pinging off the pitch. And <laughs> the, the, the referee had to bring everyone off and and stop it all. And, you know, they had to have a couple of minutes <laughs> off the pitch because the players were actually hurting from the strength of the hail. It was it was incredible. Oh my goodness. But yeah, so but fast yeah, forward, going, going say, forward yeah. to the... To the quarterfinals, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, the the quarterfinals, I, I, I went to, I went down to Marseille. Yeah. Again, <laughs> with my family, we stayed in um, Aix-en-Provence and we, we had a great time there. Um, and um, I, I went to Poland versus Portugal at the Stad Velodrome, mm-hmm. where I made one of the worst mistakes of my <laughs> journalistic career in attempting to drive the 15-minute drive from where we stand in Aix-en-Provence to the Stade Velodrome. But I didn't account for Marseille traffic. And yeah, I you was, gotta do that. Uh, but it was, it was so extreme <clears throat> that I was actually sat in my car on a, on, on a flyover thinking, what's the worst that could happen if I simply left the car here and walked the rest of the way to the ground? Mm. You know, could, could, could I, could I get away with that? Anyway, three and a bit <laughs> hours later, I eventually oh, get to the Stad Velodrome. Obviously, I'm a bit late, a little bit flustered by by this point. Even so, the Velodrome is such a magnificent stadium. You still have to have that half second, even if you've seen it a million times, to like <laughs> stop outside the car and go, oh, yeah, wow, yeah, <laughs> and just yeah, get yeah, a little yeah. photo. Made it up there, got in there, and I was due to do a little slot on Radio 5 Live. And it, it was a brilliant moment because I was there in the media booth, sat next to Chris Waddle, of course, one of oh, the absolute come on. legends. Now you're talking, what, Andy. One of the legends, not just of uh, English Sheffield football, Wednesday. but yeah. of, of Marseille yeah. in his natural environment. Oh, and um, uh, he's, uh, I sat down next to him and he goes, Yeah, Luis. And I was like, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm fine. And I, I explained to him like how it'd taken me three hours to get there. And um, as I was saying, what a nightmare it was driving into Marseille. Obviously, he knows the city quite well. And he just mm. sat there politely shaking his head. And he went, oh, yeah, man, you should have taken the TGV. <laughs> I love it. Does Waddle speak French? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'd love to hear him speak French. I love to hear the man speak at any point of the day, <clears throat> but, but oh, with a Geordie accent. That's what you're hoping oh, for. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah. yeah that's what you're hoping for. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, Portugal obviously progressed to the semis. They, they play Wales, as I say. I was at the game. I was also uh, at that game. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a classic, but but I mean, Portugal were Portugal in that tournament, weren't they? Grinding teams down and 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 their quality shone through with a with a great Cristiano Ronaldo header. Where he where he uh, got the opener and then Nani got the second goal and and they were in the final against France of course Andy that they were and that Cristiano Ronaldo <clears throat> header where he jumped and hung in the air yeah that was absolutely unbelievable <laughs> I mean 
I know I know you guys like an NBA reference and if you don't I love to give them anyway. So mm. it was it was pretty much like Russell Westbrook or Donovan Mitchell dunking where you're thinking how can someone of that size be jumping that high? It absolutely defies science and biomechanics and all, all belief really. But you you're right it wasn't an outstanding game and obviously Wales really missed Aaron Ramsey in in it that is. game as well. Um I mean the great thing about this tournament is like the whole time because I was with my French family, I quite often got to see the France games at home with them as well. So mm. the night after Portugal versus Wales, um, we, we we all sat in the front room and watched um, Germany versus France as, as as France got there, and um, my kids went around sort of painting the tricolours on on people's cheeks. They wouldn't have got away with that with you, would they? Oh, and no. um, uh, you know, it was it was it was really great to enjoy those moments with them as well. Although France did play a game in Lyon against the Republic of Ireland, which was in in the round of sixteen, which which I was at, and that was a brilliant one because you know so I'm, I'm talking about how it's not always about just the just the quality of the football; it's about mm. the sense of occasion and all that as well. Yes. and they were losing for quite a a time to mm-hmm. Ireland and you know if they'd have lost that who knows what would have happened to Didier Deschamps maybe he never would have made it to a World Cup 2018 mm-hmm. but Griezmann scored the two goals in the second half of that and that was where there was really the switch in France in that World Cup where they worked out instead of basing the team around Paul Pogba they would base it around the needs of Antoine Griezmann and they weren't mm-hmm. capable of doing both at the same time so basically it was Giroud allowing Griezmann to work off him, which worked quite well for them at, at, at that point. But mm. it did sort of marginalise Pogba a bit at the same time. Yeah, but it wasn't enough to win the tournament, Andy, because those it Portuguese wasn't. princes beat them in the final, which was incredible. Yeah. It Were you was, at the final? Was, I was, I was. So, Were what, you attacked what, what, by moths as well? <laughs> I remember the moth. <laughs> I, do, I do remember... I do remember the moths, but they didn't like the look of me. So um, I, I, I was I, I was okay. Um, and I've, I've seen a lot of good matches in Saint-Denis. This wasn't one of them. No. But a, 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 again, it was just an incredible occasion. And when we're talking about pitch spillage, as we were at the beginning with the Italians, I mean, it was the ultimate pitch spillage when... we, we got on to the final, when Ed Air scored the, 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 the winner. Like, everyone was on you know and it wasn't just a little bit on the pitch yeah, i mean yeah, i think yeah. the, the only one who didn't get on was cristiano ronaldo because of course he was limping having his ankle strapped heavily i mean that that was a very memorable coaching performance by him from the touchline as, as what, what as did well, you make sure of, we'll of ronaldo doing that because for me <clears throat> he seemed i don't know i'm going to sound very cynical here it was I mean, he tends to kind of do things for for himself. It just so happens that when he does something really well, the team obviously benefits. But mm. when I when I think of him coaching, I don't think he's doing it because he really wants the Portuguese people to celebrate and be happy and all the rest of it. It's kind of like I want that um, international football. Well, I want that involvement, but I want that international medal, something that Messi hasn't got, um, uh, and I want that for for myself. If you see what I mean, that's how I interpret his actions. Is that harsh, Andy? Or am I? Um, I think a little, um, but just personally, a little. Uh, yeah, what, I can understand why, why people think that. And there's no real way of, of disproving it. 
But that's because sure. we tend to see the world through a Messi versus Ronaldo lens. Um, mm. And I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, they um, have pushed each other to, to, to greater heights um, to, a, to a, a greater or lesser extent, much like Nas and Jay-Z in the first part of the century. <laughs> but have, having said that, I think if you spend time with Portugal and you spend time with Cristiano Ronaldo, you'll realise how much Portugal means to him. And it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning when you're talking about, I was talking about that, that sense of nation, that sense of self that they really take joy in when they get back together, that they don't always get the opportunity to celebrate when they're away playing with their, their clubs. I've never seen him so excited about anything, like not mm. any personal accolade, not any goal, nothing than when he celebrated Portugal winning the tournament, which, in the, well, Portugal winning the final, which he didn't really have that much to do with at all. Uh-huh. And it, it wasn't about him. It was about Portugal winning. And you always feel that with him. And I mean, having watched him train at quite close quarters as well across all these tournaments that I've, I've covered, everything he does is about getting everyone around him to be better in the same way as, as someone like Zlatan Ibrahimovic does. Now, Sometimes, you know, that that comes across as, you know, quite demanding, quite tyrannical even. Um, And I've I've often said before, and you may have heard me say it, that if you were the coach of of Portugal, certainly before the 2014 World Cup injury, because he has, I think, accepted certain physical limitations and um, Mm -hmm. eased off in terms of the intensity of his training since because he simply has no option. But before that... He used to fly around the pitch making mental tackles and stuff a Mm. couple of days before a game. And if you're the coach, you're thinking, give me a break. If you go down injured, you're in massive (laughs) trouble here. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. But but it it was the only way he he knew how. And I I think um, the World Cup 2014, because he was so physically diminished and all he could do then is really come out, jog around the pitch twice and then do some yoga. And and that was it. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. spoken himself about how he shouldn't really have gone to that tournament. And I think, I think it's difficult to disagree with that. Um, but I think that shows that how much he is all in for the collective when it comes to Portugal. Is it about personal glory? Of course it is, but I, I, he's such a proud Portuguese. And I think that's sometimes not always communicated. Fair enough, Andy, fair enough. Well, I mean, looking at that France side, I don't know how on earth they never won that final. But but we'll finish mm. with this. I love the fact that uh, Portugal ended the match with six yellow cards and two of them, Jose Font and Rui Patricio, came in the 119th and the 123rd minutes. Lovely bit of time wasting. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, See, the, well, the beautiful game. Yeah, indeed, yeah. I can't actually remember what the yellow card's for, but I'm assuming time-wasting or cynical fouls, making sure that uh, they get themselves over the line, and they did. Maybe Um, they were still celebrating the winner. Quite possibly. (laughs) Maybe they were. And it's been lovely uh, hearing about your uh, Euro 2016 experiences um, and and, hearing about your your journalistic and and personal experiences watching experiences of that tournament anyway so yes uh i I look forward to the next time we deconstruct some tournament that uh, that you've witnessed yourself uh, again but until then uh, have a lovely time everybody thank you very much andy brussel hi 
everyone, Kate Mason here. I joined Andy on this week's episode of Jules and Andy, which was very exciting. And we talked to former Arsenal and England physio, Gary Lewin. He is a lovely man and very interesting as well. And he talked about the unprecedented mental and physical demands on players at all levels in these strange times. It's a really fascinating listen. So we thought you might want the extended cut of that interview. Enjoy. So, Gary, from a physical perspective, the players have pretty comprehensive regimes, certainly at elite level. So from a physical side of it, are they kind of well prepared for what's happened? I don't think they'll be well prepared because I think this is something that nobody, let alone footballers, has ever experienced before. Um, They would have all experienced during their careers periods of time when they've been off through injury, through other reasons, um, for illness, but not to the degree this is completely unprecedented for anybody, really. So um, what would have happened is that in the last two or three weeks, as this has sort of progressed, football club, their backroom staff, would have been assessing what they could do with their players, how they could best do it, um, and then analysing what equipment would be needed, what equipment the players would have, and trying to set programmes, realistic programmes, that players could maintain some level of um, physical well-being um, and fitness, but obviously in a very restricted environment. Plenty of my mates, I know, Gary, have been either buying those uh, bicycles that you can sit on indoors and, you know, ride on them and and watch on the TV where you're going or like nicking, trying to nick rowing machines from various other places. Do you think there's much that we could learn just, you know, your average person who needs to keep fit at home from the sorts of things that footballers will be getting up to at the moment? Oh, definitely. I think I think the biggest thing is actually getting people to get the appetite to exercise in the home environment. Um, I don't know if you're, you're anything like me, but as soon as I walk in my front door, I just want to sit down and watch the telly and chill out. Um, but one thing that may come out of this is it may educate people, make people aware or keen to exercise at home. And, and be very creative and innovative of how they can do that. It's just not a matter of case of having to have your own gyms everywhere. I mean, some of the stuff that's going around on the internet, some of the workouts that are happening, I think it's fantastic to make people aware of things that they can do in their front room and, and, and exercise more. So um, I think there's some, there's, there will always be positives that come out of these sort of um, difficult times. And, and I think... The, the um, putting value on exercise and, and well-being through exercise can be one of the, mo- the biggest positive things that could come out of it. Gary, we're not unaware of what the top players are up to because they kind of walk us through their lives habitually through <laughs> Instagram. Um, but w- obviously we know what sort of Sergio Ramos and Cristiano Ronaldo and people like that are, are doing at home because they have these enormous gyms at home. Tell us what the challenges would be for lower division players, be it in England or elsewhere, who perhaps live in more restricted spaces and don't really have access to to those sort of top of the range facilities. Yeah, well, I think it even goes further afield than that, even in the premiership clubs, because everyone thinks of premiership clubs and their multi-million pound first team players. 
But what you've got to remember is the big clubs also have big academies and very, very um, in-depth development squads and, and academy players. And, and uh, Arsenal, um, well, I still have an association with the Arsenal women's team. We have one of the most successful women's teams around. And they don't have access to a lot of these facilities. So even the bigger clubs have got these logistical problems as well as, as the smaller clubs. Now... The first thing that the, the clubs and the backroom staff would try and work out is, okay, what sort of things do we need them to be doing to be maintaining any kind of, it's not only physical fitness, but actually um, strength and power because a lot of programs when the players are in the clubs is about developing strength and maintaining strength, maintaining balance, maintaining mobility with, with power. So there'll be lots and lots of different ways of doing it. The obvious ones are the CV, so the bikes. Um, they are allowed to go out running still in the parks, which I think is very, very helpful in, in the professional sport for players to be able to do that. Um, but also like mini circuits at home. I mean, one of the biggest things we've been sending out to a lot of the players is, is kettlebells and dumbbells and, and power bands so they can do um, some basic circuits indoors to maintain a lot of power. And again, that's where you can come to creative. I mean, if they've got stairs, you can do work on stairs. Um, you can do a lot of, um, there's, we're doing a lot of yoga work um, and putting out yoga classes um, to the players. Um, this is where the internet is so powerful in that a lot of clubs have got um, internet connections for the teams. Um, and so they can do group sessions. Um, there was one on the telly the other day, um, I was watching a, uh, a lady who did parties for kids and she did this online party for about 20 kids and it was absolutely fantastic what they did and so again it's being creative um and trying to work out what facilities you can we can all tap into whilst being at home but it goes further than that as well you've got players that um are foreign players in a foreign country um may not have their families here maybe on their own so there's loads of different aspects of it that really need to be looked at and 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 it's not it's not an easy thing to answer because every person will be completely different and every surrounding will be different so the, the clubs have got to be very very um creative in how they try and get their players to exercise you touched on it a bit there gary obviously what footballers have had, what all of us have had, fans have had this routine of going to football, watching football, you know, twice a week, three times a week, multiple games on the weekend for months and months and months, all our lives perhaps. And they've, everyone's lost this in one uh, fell swoop. What, what do you understand about the impact that could have on, on players' mental well-being? I mean, this is such a vast subject. I mean, you can. I've heard the the, the phrase institutionalized used, and, it, and, it, and it's not wrong. Players, their whole lives are geared around about performance and getting ready for the next game. And we're now in the business end of the season, so we're in the last 10, 12 games of the league season. You're getting into the final stages of all cup competitions, and suddenly that stops. And again, I, I mentioned it earlier. This this will be unprecedented because. Players sometimes stop through injury. Players sometimes stop through illness or they stop because they've been dropped from the team. But the matches still go on. Um, I mean, the, the, the 
from a personal thing over the weekend, turning the telly on and there's no match of the day of a game going on or there's no live um, reporting of any sport anywhere. Um, it's a massive void. So that's from a sports perspective that there's suddenly this adrenaline rush they, they get two or three times a week, this competitive um, urge they get on a regular basis is now being withdrawn. So again, that would come into some of the um, thinking of the support staff in that if they were doing group sessions with players to make it competitive. So you, you get this competitive edge um, still amongst the squad. That's from a sporting point of view. You've also got, and I, I sort of touched on it earlier, is the mental and the mental well-being aspect of they're scared. I mean, this is, this is a virus that can affect anybody in their day-to-day lives. You've already seen instances of managers and players around the world that have actually been infected. And <clears throat> although the experts are telling us that young, fit people may only get a mild dose of it, you, you're still hearing stories of other people that are, are fit, and, relatively fit and healthy that we know of that have still been affected in, in a really bad way. So... They're scared. They're scared for their families. They, they don't want their families to become ill. Their parents, players, footballers, even if in their own countries, get scattered around the country. But there are a lot of foreign players here. I mean, one of the biggest um, um, fears they've got is being away from their parents. Could you imagine if you're living in a foreign country and your parents are elderly and you're thinking, well, if I don't go home and something bad happens to them, I'll never forgive myself. If I go home, I'm putting me and my family at risk because I'm traveling and I'm putting my family at risk of actually catching the virus. So there's there's a lot of pressure on, on, on everybody, but obviously I'm just talking about footballers, from not only about the lack of football, but also what's going on in everyone's life day to day at the moment. I suppose moving on from that, Gary, and I know it seems a long way in the future now because we we don't know how long this piece of string is, but people are understandably talking about when the season might resume. I mean, even if they have a mini pre-season, the players, it is an unprecedented situation. And you were talking about it coming into the money part of the season. Well, the fact is there's no little point to play themselves in. I mean, psychologically, how will that be? The fact that they're straight back into not just games, but games that really matter. I know games that matter, it's it, you know, it's relative to what's actually happening in the world at the moment, but they're expected to get straight back into it from the get-go for games that are Champions League quarterfinals, will affect um, leagues, promotion, all that sort of stuff. Do the clubs have to be conscious of how difficult that is? I think the clubs do. I think more importantly, the administrators need to be aware of that because I think what needs to happen is it almost needs to work backwards. And I think they need to seek advice from the clubs on what would be a, a reasonable period of time to get the players up to fitness to be able to perform. I think the, the one key message from this will be that um, everyone will be starting on a level playing field. So when they do to start the league, um, however long they allow the teams to get up to, to scratch physically uh, and in preparation for matches, it will be a level playing field. Everyone will be starting from the same point. So I think that's that's a positive that comes out of it. Um, I, 
And again, working backwards, this is more of a a social question as much as a sport question. The first thing we've got to ask the question is when is it safe for the players to go back to work to be able to get fit to play? Once they're fit and they're safe to go back to work and start the process of getting their fitness right, um, how long do they need to do that before it's safe for them to actually perform again? Because if you undercook them and they start performing, the competition overrides anything physically that may happen. I mean, in a normal pre-season, they'll spend six weeks playing friendly games. They might play 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minutes. That won't that won't be allowed to happen now. They're going to have to go straight back into it. So they've got to make sure that they're fair on these professional athletes, that they're fit enough to be able to withstand the matches. I also think there will be an, um, an avalanche of games. So they'll be expected to play three games a week, possibly... I mean, I've been reading somewhere they might play four games in a week, so they might have to go Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday or Sunday in a week just to fit the fixtures in. Um, so there, there's a lot of there's a lot of different aspects that need to be thought through before we even get a start date registered in our head of when it is safe to start. And and I think that's the process and that everyone's going through now. And because there's so many variables and unknowns there, it is making it very, very difficult to get, get an end goal, which in itself also puts more pressure on football clubs, administrators, players, staff. Because if we haven't got a start point in our heads, working backwards, how do we know to what level we need the players to be going on week to week to week? So there's a lot of variables there, but I think once the social restrictions are lifted, it will then become a little bit clearer and then goals will be set and then it will be easier for everyone to to judge where they are. Gary Neville the other night with the enthusiasm of the former pro that doesn't have to actually do all this at the moment uh, was saying, you know, they don't need to worry. We should do, we should, when we're worried about getting the season finished, we should play, you know, nine games in a row if we have to, all this sort of stuff. I mean, what would you see as being the limits? Because, you know, over the Christmas period, we had all sorts of players getting, getting injured as far as I could tell as a result of overuse. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fine, yeah, it's a fine balance um, there. Where you, if you look at the Christmas period where the injuries go up annually, that's at the end of uh, four months of competitive football. So they're actually going into the Christmas program fatigued, and then we had more load onto them. Um, the difference here is that we're actually going to go into a period of games where they might have had one, two months off. So I don't th- the fatigue element would come because they're not fit enough, not because they've overplayed. Now, I think it, w- it's, it would be unfair on the players to demand that from them. But I do see where Gary's coming from, that it's a level playing field for everybody. So in, in, the, in the good old bad old days when Gary played and, uh, and the, the really old days when I first started, I mean, I remember Christmas programs. We used to play Christmas Day, Boxing Day, um, the 1st of Jan and the 2nd of Jan. And we only had squads of 15 players. But by you got by the time you got to the fourth game, it was like watching a testimonial game because everyone was just walking around. So it's physically possible to do it, but the argument back are with the athlete the way they are nowadays is that 
good for the players. The risk of injury will go through the roof. But also the quality of football. Would that be up to standard? Because at the end of the day, we are an entertainment business. It's not a case of just ramming the games down people's throats. It is an entertainment business. So I think there has to be a fair compromise. But the point I keep coming back to, because it's a level playing field and because these are unprecedented, exceptional circumstances, I think there's going to be, have to be an acceptance that there, there will be overplaying of games over a short period of time. Finally, Gary, do you think this is a possible positive aspect that we could take from this whole terrible situation that we arrive at a point where we understand players' physical and mental needs a bit better? I, I'm I'm always a, a glass half full, not half empty, and I think there's always positives that will come out of situations like this. Um, I think the awareness of the general public of how important exercise is, I think the the awareness, um, the mental health aspects of, the, of of this, using players as an illustration about even elite sports people um, um, can suffer. Um, I think there's a lot of positives. And from a personal point of view, the number of people that will be taking up exercise in their home environment, it would be lovely to see if they carried that on because I think for the, the, the population in general, I think there will be a lot of positives that come out of it. From a football aspect, I mean, the biggest po- pos- the biggest thing that's hit me, positive that's hit me already, is uh, we've only been shut down two weeks and I'm missing it like mad already. So <laughs> I think the enthusiasm for the sport will, will, will grow and grow and grow. Um, and I think also it brings the elite sportsmen to the level of Joe Public in that they're in the same boat. We're all, we're all in the same boat. We're going through an incredible, um, I keep using the word unprecedented, uh, an incredible time in our lives that I don't think anyone would have ever experienced before. So, yes, I think there will be a lot of positives that will come out of it. This was a Stakhanov production.